Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm joined by Allison McQueen to discuss her new book, Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times, recently published by Cambridge University Press. Dr. McQueen explores the apocalyptic thought, sometimes ignored by scholars and academics, of Niccolo Machiavelli, Thomas Hobbes, and Hans Morgenthau. This book asks us as theorists and thinkers to take the apocalypse passages and parts of the work much more seriously, while also positioning these aspects within the broader framework of each theorist's overall realist perspective. This is an incredibly thorough and engaging exploration of the political and theoretical projects of these three thinkers, while also examining the scholarly discussion around realism and around these particular thinkers and others within the realist school. I will, ask, I will ask Allison to delve into her work, but first let me introduce Allison McQueen, author of Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times, and have her tell us a little about herself and how she came to this particular project. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lily. Thanks for having me. So I'm a political theorist. I work primarily in the history of political thought, particularly what we call early modern political thought, spanning roughly from 1500 to 1850. I teach at Stanford University in the political science department. And I spend a lot of my time thinking about the connection between religion and politics and the history of political thought. And I also spend some of my time on the history of international relations thought, the history of our thinking about the uh, interactions between states. And, and so how did you come to this particular project on apocalyptic um, times? Well, the genesis of this book was as a dissertation project when I was a graduate student. And at, at a biographical level, I'm Canadian. And when I arrived in the United States for graduate school, it was in 2005 at the height of the war on terror the political rhetoric in the United States at that time was apocalyptic. Biblical tropes of scourge and salvation were everywhere. Just to give you an example, in his second inaugural address in 2005, President George W. Bush called the terrorist attacks of 9-11 a day of fire. Um, but he also moved to reassure Americans that redemption was on the horizon. As he put it, the untamed fire of freedom would reach even the darkest corners of the world. So I, I came to graduate school at a time when this apocalyptic rhetoric was in the air. And it made me consider that in important ways, this, this kind of thinking is really mainstream, um, it's easy to think of apocalyptic rhetoric as marginal and extremist, but here it was uh, coming out of the coming out of the mouth of the uh, of the president. So I I became curious uh, about what the history of political thought had to say about this, and I got a, a, a kind of starting clue from the reaction to the war on terror and especially the invasion of Iraq from a lot of prominent self-described realists at the time, uh, people, people like John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago, who was immensely uh, critical of the war. And what struck me about some of their criticisms was they weren't, they didn't just think that the war in Iraq was not in the United States's national interest. They also seemed to be somewhat disturbed at what they took to be the underlying worldview that informed, uh, that informed this foreign policy, a worldview influenced by the traditions of Wilsonianism, of, of Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, and a certain kind of aggressive liberal internationalism. And so I became curious about that. And I started looking back into the to the realist tradition. I looked at people like Hans Morgenthau and E.H. Carr, both writing in the uh, early to mid 20th century. And 
what I saw there was that they they also had worries about this worldview, and they had a worry about what they thought was an apocalyptic impulse that underpinned this worldview. The idea that the, the current crises and wars were merely the prelude to a better millennial future. Famously, Woodrow Wilson himself said that World War I was the war to end all wars, and that it would uh, it would usher in the the spread of democracy and and bring a, a definitive peace in our time. And so I, I became even more curious then about what some of the older canonical thinkers in the in the realist tradition had had thought about these these apocalyptic worldviews, and. I just so happened at the time, and this is maybe a plug for the value of studying for your comprehensive exams in graduate school. I was I was learning a lot more about Machiavelli, and I was also learning a lot more about Thomas Hobbes. And it it, it really stood out to me that both of these thinkers, who are seen as canonical members of the realist tradition, as well as canonical figures in the history of political thought, both wrote during times when powerful political actors thought the world was ending. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That's not a part of their context that we tend to think about. And so when I reread their works with that context in mind, I noticed all sorts of all sorts of new things about them. And and so it was it was through that experience of being interested and puzzled by what was going on in contemporary politics and then driven back because of the contemporary debates to the realist tradition to start to think about how some of these great thinkers had had responded to hopes and fears about the end of the world in their time. That's it's really interesting the way that you sort of put the, the sort of two aspects of contemporary politics and rhetoric together with, um, you know, sort of thinking about the canonical texts, as you say, by Machiavelli and Hobbes and so forth. And so I wanted to ask you in this context also, you've explained it a little bit, but what do you mean by apocalyptic times, the rhetoric itself? And then, of course, um, this, this term that you use throughout the book, apocalypticism. Great. Thanks. Well, let's, let's, start with, uh, let's start with your last question. Let's start with what apocalypticism is. We all recognize, I think, the familiar religious examples, the people standing on street corners, holding up signs, telling us that the end is nigh, that we better repent. But I think we also recognize the some of the contemporary examples, the warnings we're getting today about human-made apocalypses, human-made ends of the world, climate change, nuclear war. I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, where, where people... Uh, are often worried about killer robots. Uh, apocalypticism is essentially, I mean, what unites all of these trans is that apocalypticism encapsulates the view that you may be familiar with from that great REM song. <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it. Basically, what apocalypticism is, is a belief that, that the end of this world is imminent, along with the end of a lot of its attendant evils, and that we can expect the arrival of a radically new future. Now, that future could be good for humanity. Uh, in the book of Revelation, for instance, the wars and tribulations and crises of the end of the world usher in a brand new future, a new Jerusalem where God will, I'm quoting here, will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying uh, will be no more. Pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. That in the end is a great future for the people who survive the scourge and tribulation and for the people who are resurrected. But of course, some apocalypses spell bad futures for humanity, total annihilation. Think of the end of Dr. Strangelove, right? Um, a, a nuclear end to the world. And so ap apocalypticism encompasses both of those sorts of futures. But the critical thing that links apocalyptic thinking is this belief in the imminent end of the known world and arri uh, the arrival of a radically new future, good or bad. And 
So when I talk about people living in apocalyptic times, when I talk about Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes and Morgenthau writing during apocalyptic times, what I mean is those are times when powerful political and social actors are announcing the imminent end of the known world, where these beliefs have taken hold uh, in mainstream, mainstream sectors. And apocalyptic rhetoric, then, is the kind of rhetoric and discourse that surrounds these beliefs, that, that is used to announce these beliefs, to prophesy the end of the world and the arrival of this radically new future. And, and so, I mean, this is all, again, fascinating stuff. And there's, there's a, a, a number of aspects of sort of apocalyptic rhetoric that, that you talk about. But I wanted to ask you if you could sort of ask, if you could explain to us how to consider um, uh, the approach to understanding apocalyptic thought and rhetoric, which is, again, the shape of your, of your book. I think the, the thing that I would really like to insist on here, and the thing that the book is is really trying to make clear is that what we tend to think of apocalyptic thinking as marginal, as extremist. We tend to imagine a group of vulnerable people hunkered down in some rural bunker under the, under the thrall of a charismatic leader. But apocalyptic thinking and apocalyptic rhetoric is actually all around us. It's, it's immensely appealing. It appeals to, I, I think, as a, a drive we all have as, as human beings to make sense of the big events in our lives by fitting them into a story, by fitting them into a narrative. And so apocalyptic language, apocalyptic thinking, for that reason, is, is very alluring. It helps impose a simple story on events that are troubling and often hard to understand. So, so for example, the early Christians who heard the biblical revelation, for them, the trauma of Roman imperial rule suddenly became meaningful. I mean, the, the trials and tribulations that they were living through were just a prelude to a better future, to a, to a heaven on earth. But I think apocalyptic language can also perform the same function for, uh, for people who don't expect any sort of redemptive ending. I mean, many people today feel like things are getting worse, that the threat of uh, nuclear war is worse, that the threat of global climate change looms large. And apocalyptic an apocalyptic way of imagining our world helps to confirm that feeling. It helps to uh, it helps to make sense of it, and so apocalypticism is is very appealing for that reason. And that's why I think it has been since uh, biblical times or even before uh, a recurrent thread through mainstream thinking uh, about our current circumstances. And and I and again, I think this is really important to think about in terms of the work that you did in this book, is that you also are paying attention, as you know, to aspects of the work by by Machiavelli, by Hobbes, and by Morgenthau that is not always considered when we study or we teach these works and these thinkers. Um, and so you talk about how they and sort of incorporate apocalypticism into their work um, and also how they respond to it. Can you explain a little bit about how these thinkers do integrate this into their work um, and where it often is and not and not necessarily at the top list of things that we teach or often talk about with regard to the thinkers. And also, you note that they do one of two things, or maybe both, um, either reject some of it or redirect it. So can you talk a little bit about that, which is a centerpiece of a lot of your writing here? Sure, yes. The, the book, the central argument of the book is is essentially addressing this question. 
All three of these thinkers, Niccolò Machiavelli, Thomas Hobbes, and Hans Morgenthau, see the appeal of apocalyptic rhetoric, and they see the temptation to prophesy the end of days, but they also worry about the dangers of apocalyptic rhetoric. And so the book is really about how they negotiate both the appeal and the dangers of apocalyptic thinking. And as as you said, they tend to use one of two strategies. And so the first strategy I call rejection. The idea here is that one way to respond to apocalyptic thinking and to apocalyptic rhetoric is to reject it entirely, to adopt an entirely different worldview. And the worldview that that some of these thinkers tend to embrace is a is a tragic worldview, a worldview that says there there is going to be no end to the eternal struggle of our political condition, that politics is just essentially the same damn thing over and over again. And we have to resign ourselves to it. It doesn't mean that there isn't the potential for incremental progress. I think that's important to stress that even even thinkers who adopt a tragic worldview see room for incremental progress toward a more just world. They just think that progress is going to be slow. It's often going to be one step forward, two steps back. It's going to be, to borrow Max Weber's phrase, the slow boring through hard boards. Uh, so, th- But that is one approach to, to reject apocalypticism entirely, to reject what what some of these thinkers saw as the false promise of apocalyptic thinking, that we could just escape the conflict and difficulties we're facing and live in, a, in some religious or secular version of a new Jerusalem. And, and that's, that strategy of rejection is one that Machiavelli employs later on in his political writings. And it's one that Hans Morgenthau initially adopts and then, and then comes to abandon. The other strategy is redirection, which is not to turn away from an apocalyptic worldview, to embrace aspects of that worldview, but to use it to fight back against apocalyptic rhetoric. In a way, it's it's a way of using rhetoric against rhetoric. And Hobbes does this really nicely. Hobbes recognizes that a lot of people in the mid-17th century, in the height of the English Civil War, a lot of people on both sides of that conflict, royalists, parliamentarians, and radicals, are using apocalyptic language. And instead of rejecting that language entirely, Hobbes adopts aspects of it. He argues with them from within the apocalyptic worldview. He looks at the same biblical texts they're looking at and tries to argue away the subversive potential of this apocalyptic language. So that's that's what I mean and that in terms of redirection, he uses that worldview. He works within it to try and hold back to fight against the dangers and the worst excesses of apocalyptic rhetoric. Morgenthau does a variant of the same thing. He sees that a lot of people in his own time are either too complacent or actually excited about the transformative and potentially world-ending potential of nuclear weapons. And he draws on a secular uh, body of apocalyptic language to paint one of the most existentially terrifying visions of a nuclear end of the world in order to prevent the actual end of the world. And so he embraces aspects of apocalyptic thinking in order to fight the dangers of apocalyptic thinking. And and again, these these sort of um, conceptual uh, jousting is really complicated, but you've, you've sort of, you know, sort of laid it out in a fascinating way as you delve into, you know, like the whole body of the work by Hobbes and by Machiavelli and by Morgenthau. Um, but in this context also, you're talking about how we should think about Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Morgenthau within the sort of school of thought of political realism. 
and and you sort of define out the particular characteristics and qualities of political realism in the introductory chapter of your book. And I want to recommend this to everybody. It is one of the clearest sort of explications of political realism that I have ever read. So I would love for you, Allison, to explain the four points that you outline with regard to understanding what political realism is and how it operates. Well, thank you so much. That that means a, a lot. I'm glad it I'm glad it's a clear discussion. Basically, I think that realism has four elements to it. And and I should say I'm thinking about realism as a tradition of thinking that that spans the history of political thought. And so it's it's with that sense of an arc that goes back at least to Thucydides uh, to, to the present that I that I have tried to make conceptual sense of this way of thinking about politics. But as you said, I think it has four elements to it. The first is a is a commitment to the distinctiveness of politics. That politics for realists is its own realm, separate in many ways from the rest or distinct from the rest of political life. And that affects how they see the connection between ethics and politics. So for some realists, the political realm is an amoral realm, a realm where there are no moral rules. For, for others, it's a realm with its own morality, distinct from the conventional morality of private or at least non-political life. For others, it's a realm in which our conventional moral rules have to be overridden. So think about what Machiavelli says about how the best rulers ought to behave. He says they ought not to depart from good when possible, but they must know how to enter into evil when necessary, right? And that necessity is something particular to the to the political political realm. So there's an idea in the realist tradition that that politics is a distinctive realm and that that affects the way we should view the place of morality in politics. The second big realist commitment is an idea that politics is conflictual or as political theorists might like to put it is agonistic. That could be for a lot of reasons. That could be because humans are driven by passions, that there are real limits to our capacity to reason, to our rationality. It could be because there are competing interests and identities at work. It could also be because there are competing values at work, that there some realists are committed to some idea of value pluralism, that the, there are certain moral commitments that cannot be reconciled with one another. And so, for instance, Hans Morgenthau says that the aspiration for power over man is both a cause of conflict, but the essence of politics. So politics for Morgenthau is a struggle for power. It is always conflictual and and agonistic. The third big realist commitment is is a commitment to the priority of order and stability over the demands of justice. For realists, Order and stability are fragile accomplishments. They can, order and stability can fall apart at any time. Think about Hobbes, very, very aware of that, saw his country completely torn apart by civil war. For anyone who sees their country torn apart by civil war, order and stability are going to be your main goals. They are going to be the preconditions for achieving any other kinds of political values like justice. And that idea runs through the realist tradition. The the 20th century uh, philosopher Bernard Williams makes the same point. He says that order is the first political question. It's the question that must be solved before you go on to solve others. And part of the reason for that has got to be that justice purchased at the expense of order is likely to prove self-defeating. The final final realist commitment is is what we might call an anti-utopianism, that realists tend to think that, that people who don't accept the previous three commitments, the distinctiveness of politics, the conflictual nature of politics, the priority of order and stability, 
tend to engage in political thinking that is at worst futile. It's not going to be able to achieve much in the world. Uh, or sorry, is that best futile? But is it worse dangerous, right? That that approaches that fail to take account of the psychological, the sociological, and the institutional constraints on political action are going to give us advice about how to organize our political world that is is either self-defeating or is is likely to likely to prove quite dangerous. So if you think of Machiavelli, he's he's he says early on in The Prince that he, his approach is going to be different than the approach of those who imagine republics or principalities that have never been known to exist. And that in fact we should be awfully suspicious of people who theorize at that at that ideal level because their political prescriptions are likely to be to to be self-defeating uh, or even uh, terrifyingly dangerous. I, I love pointing out that passage to my students after we've read The Republic and then read that in the prints. And I was like, who do you think <laughs> he's talking about there? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, thank you for, for explaining the, the sort of four points that you outlined so well. And, and what I want to pull you into now, and, and part of this you've already touched on a bit, is why you focus on these three. Why Machiavelli in, you know, Medici, Florence, Hobbes within an England unsettled by civil war, and Morgenthau after World War II as we enter the dawn of the nuclear age. Why these three thinkers and what is the importance of their particular historical and political perspectives in understanding essentially apocalyptic times and their their conception of it within their own work. Great. So there there are a couple of reasons for choosing these three. The the first is that they are they are canonical thinkers in the history of of realist thought. Now, that might strike some people in political theory as odd because well they they might they might acknowledge that Machiavelli and Hobbes are important members of a, of a realist tradition of thinking about political theory. Morgenthau is not someone who political theorists tend to read. But if you go over and talk to some people in international relations, Morgenthau is indeed a canonical figure in the history of realist thought and certainly an important person for the evolution of realist thinking about international relations in, in post-war United States. So I'm, I'm blending together uh, the sense of canonical from political theory and, uh, and the history of international relations thought here. But I, but I, think, I think a strong case can be made that all, all three of these figures, albeit in different fields, are canonical members of, of this tradition. And because the project initially started from this interest of how realists were responding to the apocalyptic worldview that seemed to underpin, for instance, the war on Iraq, but uh, in Iraq, but potentially also a lot of other instances of American foreign policy. Uh, that's I, I decided to look deep in the in the realist tradition. But the the other interesting thing about these these thinkers, which is part of what I discovered when I was learning more about them, is they all did write at these these moments when powerful social and political actors were announcing the end of the known world. So they were writing at times when apocalyptic thinking was not marginal. It had taken the center stage in politics. So for instance, Machiavelli is writing at a time when Italy is in crisis. It's being torn apart by the Italian wars a series of conflicts that involve not just the individual states that that make up what is now Italy, but also a bunch of the big European powers. At the same time, Florence is in a situation of domestic crisis. Its regime is crumbling after 60 years of Medici rule. And apocalyptic thinking becomes the 
I mean, I don't think this is too strong a way to put it. The currency of politics in in Florence at the end of the the fifteen um, of the fifteenth century, and at the center of that apocalyptic movement is the Francis no sorry Dominican friar Girolamo Savonarola, who comes to power in. Florence by in part by announcing the the end of the end of the known world saying that the crises that that Florence and Italy are undergoing at the moment are are God's scourge are a punishment for the immorality of Florentines and eventually uh, Savonarola comes to a somewhat more optimistic apocalyptic vision that the, the, this, this scourge and tribulation is, is but the prelude to a millennial future for the godly that, interestingly enough, will be centered in Florence. Florence will become the new Jerusalem. And what people have to do is to repent, to fight on the side of God, to make themselves more moral, of course, importantly, to burn their uh, to to burn all their vanities. <laughs> and uh, and Machiavelli, I think, is far more interested in this than we've given him credit for. And I, I read important passages of, of the prince as, uh, as a flirtation with this kind of apocalyptic thinking. And I, I argue that he later recognizes some of the dangers of this way of thinking, turns away from it and adopts, as I said earlier, this more tragic worldview. Now fast forward to the 17th century in England. Think about Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, writing in the midst of the English Civil War. And one of the things that's so interesting about the Civil War is you've got apocalyptic thinking on all sides of this war. But let's take the side that Hobbes was most worried about, the, the, the side of the parliamentarians and radicals who were resisting the, the power of the king, who eventually played a role in uh, in bringing about Charles Charles's execution, uh, what's so interesting in Hobbes's time is that apocalyptic preaching is not just happening on the street corners, though there was plenty of it there. It is happening in Parliament. Apocalyptic preachers are being invited to give speeches before parliamentarians. And what they're telling parliamentarians is that we are in the battle of the end times. And there are two sides here. There's the side of good and there's the side of evil. And the side for them of the parliamentarians fighting against the king was the side of good. And they ought to be willing to do anything in the cause of uh, of God. And so Stephen Marshall, one of the great apocalyptic preachers of the age, comes to Parliament and he tells them, and he's channeling, I think it's Psalm 136 or 137, he's channeling uh, one of the Psalms and, and saying that if, if God's cause demands it, the parliamentarian soldiers must be willing to take little babies by the heels and beat out their brains against the wall. And so this, that is a speech being given before Parliament. It's a speech that Parliament then printed, ordered printed. So it, in a way, has their stamp of approval. And, and that, that's the kind of language that Hobbes is worried about. And instead of turning away from it, he embraces it. He tries to argue on these people's own terms. He says, okay, you believe the apocalyptic story. Let's see what it actually says. Let's see how we can understand it together. And of course, for Hobbes, what he's trying to convince them is actually it does not invite or call <laughs> us to, to rebel. No everyone, war. Everyone just calm down. <laughs> um, and now, yeah, <laughs> and now, now a big fast forward to the, to the 20th century. And here we've got Hans Morgenthau, such an interesting figure because he, like a lot of the great post-war thinkers in America, is uh, a German-Jewish emigre. He escapes, uh, he escapes Nazi Germany at, at just about the right time and comes to the United States and, and what, how does he make sense of his world? He comes to the United States at the dawn of the nuclear age. 
he's looking at these new developments with the whole backdrop of the experience of the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust lurking in the background. The Holocaust, which for some of the people who survived it, was the apocalypse of our time. And yes, and Morgenthau is trying to trying to make sense of all of this. And he, he undergoes this interesting transformation. Initially, he's very suspicious of apocalyptic thinking. He diagnoses a strand of apocalyptic thinking and that uh, tradition of aggressive liberal international foreign policy that I've that I mentioned before, and a Wilsonian tradition of American foreign policy. He says that underpinning that hope to wage the last war to end all wars, underpinning that hope is an eschatological vision that's run through American foreign policy from the very beginning. Eschatological just meaning a vision of the uh, the end times, and. And so he's initially quite critical of it. And he he does turn to a tragic worldview, very German, very influenced by the likes of Nietzsche and Weber, that politics is just an undecided struggle and there's no easy escape from it. There's no millennial future. We have to confront that struggle again and again. But I think what he finds is that on a this this kind of tragic worldview doesn't allow him to confront the radical novelty of thermonuclear weapons, of weapons capable of mass destruction on a previously unimaginable scale. If you think about a tragic worldview, that politics is just the same damn thing again and again, it, it really is going to leave you ill-equipped to recognize instances of genuine novelty. And the thermonuclear revolution is, I think, a, a radically novel situation. And so Morgenthau then does turn toward embracing aspects of, a, of an apocalyptic worldview and using them to, in fact, scare people into really recognizing the danger that could be wrought by, by these apocalyptic weapons. And, and you know, follow-up, this is just... Just a, a sort of consideration and given the kind of rhetoric and writing that you've been exploring, a lot of the conversation about climate change then fits very squarely within your um, sort of analysis of the way that these thinkers have also um, understood and, and sort of integrated um, apocalyptic thinking into their discussions of politics. I mean, things about that Al Gore has posited in his, um, in his films and that many scientists have articulated sort of fits within particularly the, the, the characteristic that you also have given of, of Morgenthau who integrates this sort of understanding of thermonuclear war into our discourse on politics. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting connection, and I and I think you're right there. So so we might say that uh, that a, that tragic worldview that politics is the same damn thing over and over that its its fatal flaw is that it leaves us ill-equipped to deal with radically new situations. And for Morgenthau, that situation was the thermonuclear revolution, and for us, it's it's uh, arguably climate change, and so. You see people, as, as you mentioned, like Al Gore, trying to figure out how best to raise the alarm about this, this existential threat and, and coming to a similar conclusion to the one that Morgenthau comes to, which is the way to, to get people appropriately uh, scared about, about this possibility is to resort to apocalyptic language. And we see Gore do this repeatedly. One of, one of his favorite things to do is to rehearse a lot, uh, the, the most current examples of contemporary climate catastrophes, floods, droughts, huge storms, and then to say, and I'm quoting him, it's like a nature hike through the book of Revelation. And so he's using that, in, in fact, in this case, that biblical apocalyptic language, I think, very uh, very intentionally. And he's using it to raise awareness about a real threat. And I, and I think the thought there is, as, as it was for Morgenthau, is that, that apocalyptic language at its best 
can help shake us out of our complacency. It can help cultivate a rational fear of things that may wear it very well and human existence on earth. Uh, I think the hope is that by scaring us in that way, it can get us to take action by changing our consumption habits, by voting for candidates who support intergovernmental action on climate change, etc. But I, I would just sound one note of caution about this, this strategy, that I think even when apocalyptic language is used for these laudable ends of raising alarm about a radically new threat to our common existence, that I think it still can be pretty risky. Social scientists have found that a common reaction to apocalyptic language, at least in the climate change debate, is that it leaves people feeling disengaged and powerless. Instead of rousing people to action, it, uh, it, prompts, it prompts paralysis. The, th- the thought process being, I think, uh, among people who hear this kind of language, well, if things really are this bad and if there's so little that I can do to make a difference, I, I might as well just live large and ride this out in my Hummer, you know. And, and so I think even in, in cases like Morgenthau on the, on the nuclear threat and Gore on the climate change threat, that even while using apocalyptic language there might be perfectly understandable, it might be in some sense, uh, in some sense, the morally appropriate thing for them to do, it may not always have the outcomes that they're hoping. It it made people just stay home, basically. (laughs) Yeah, which I think has been the reaction of some people to the apocalyptic framing of the climate change debate. It can end up looking to us like a problem that is is so large, so unstoppable, that that the kinds of things that are in our power to do, buying different kinds of light bulbs, getting a Prius, flying less, are really not going to make a dent in the problem. And, and so I think that apocalyptic language can really destroy people's sense of sense of agency, which is, is not the intention of people like Morgenthau and Gore. It's, and, and I think there are ways around it, but it, it is, it, I'm trying to sound a bit of a note of caution. Here. That makes, I mean, and that certainly makes sense because the threat can seem so large and, and apocalyptic, as you say. Um, and, and you, you structure the book itself around, as you know, Machiavelli, Hobbes and Morgenthau. But you also have a a rich um, sort of noted discussion that runs through the entirety of the book. And there are other thinkers and works that you use to buttress your analysis of these three thinkers. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other thinkers and how you use them in your analysis of realism, and apocalyptic thought, and the history of political theory, um, and of course, these three thinkers. It's a very large question. I'm sorry. Sure. I think that I've always felt about this book that the the thinker lurking uncomfortably in the background is Carl Schmitt, the uh, political and legal thinker also uh, the Nazi jurist uh, in in wartime Germany. And Schmidt made uh, a very bold, I think too bold, (laughs) claim that that we tend to see as the the thesis of, of an approach called political theology. And he claimed that modern political concepts are just secularized theological concepts. Now, so, um, you know, uh, to give to give an example, the the modern concept of sovereign decision is but a secularized version of some theological understanding of the miracle. Let's say, now that all sounds uh, pretty theoretical and a bit abstract. I think he's also overclaiming, <laughs> um, but I think there is uh, an insight there that that a lot of the ways of understanding our political world that we have inherited through the ages were at some point ways of uh, ways 
religious ways of understanding the world. Um, and so I think ap- apocalypticism and the apocalyptic worldview goes through a process like this. Obviously, it does start as a mystical and religious worldview. Um, I would hasten to add that doesn't mean that it starts non-politically. I think apocalyptic ways of imagining the world were political from the get-go. For for the writer of the book of Revelation, the apocalyptic worldview was a way of making sense of life in the Roman Empire as a minority, as a, as a a minority community and suffering the oppression and, and persecution that goes along with this. But, but it was undoubtedly also a theological way of understanding the world. But I think what's interesting is that uh, these apocalyptic ideas get over time secularized and they end up, they end up appearing throughout our, our thinking in, in more, more secular guises. And so for instance, and if you can you can get a sense of this if you look at the structure of concepts like apocalypticism. The structure of uh, an, of an apocalyptic worldview is that uh, that there are some crises and difficulties in the present, but that they herald some kind of new future for better or for for worse. And that that sort of idea crops up a lot. I mean, this is not one of the thinkers I talk about in the book, but if you think of the the structure of Marx and Engels's worldview, right? That we that history is heading toward a final confrontation <laughs> that will usher in a a brand new, so radically new that we can't really specify what what it will look like, uh, but a but a classless society that that for for many has has utopian dimensions, and so this this idea that that history is inevitably moving in one direction and that there's going to be some kind of crisis or cataclysm after which the world is is completely transformed, exists in our secular thinking, and can be traced back to, I think, some of those theological roots. So, so Schmidt lurks there in the background. And he also, of course, crops up again in the chapter on Hans Morgenthau, who arguably spends a lot of his scholarly career in what some some scholars have called a hidden dialogue with Schmidt. He he knew Schmidt. They had a they had a, a, a troubled intellectual connection. Uh, Morgenthau thought that that Schmidt in the second edition of the concept of the political had essentially lifted, plagiarized some of Morgenthau's ideas without attribution. And Morgenthau, for his part, often often adopted uh, a lot of Schmidt's arguments, I, I would hasten to add, also without attribution. <laughs> and, uh, and so Schmidt is certainly lurking in the background of this book in many ways. On a, on a methodological level, though, I'd say the other, uh, the other thinker, political theorist, historian of political thought that, is, that informs my work has to be Quentin Skinner and the, the approach, the contextualist approach to the history of political thought to which his work um, I don't quite want to say gave, gives rise, but he, he helped to define the core methodological commitments of that approach. And it's, pro, it's an approach that, that I mostly embrace, as you'll know from reading the, the first chapter. I have some, some quibbles, but I, I broadly see my own work as, as work in this vein. And the, the idea is that when we read these canonical texts or, or non-canonical texts in the history of political thought, that, that the text itself, I'm quoting Skinner now, is not the self-sufficient object of inquiry and understanding. So in order to understand what Machiavelli or Hobbes was up to, it's not enough that we read The Prince or Leviathan. We want to understand something about the context in which they were writing. And I mean, I think in Hobbes's case, this, this is really clear. You're not going to understand why Hobbes decided to devote the entire second half of Leviathan to religious and scriptural arguments unless you understand something about the role that religion and 
interpretations of scripture played in the politics of the 17th century in England, and especially the politics surrounding the Civil War. Now, once we start to look at texts that way, as texts situated within contexts of debates and and discourses and different narratives and ways of imagining the world, then these thinkers start to look a little bit different to us. They They no longer look like armchair philosophers trying to come up with a abstract universal theory um, for their academic friends, they start to look a lot more like, I think, what they are, which is people deeply engaged in the politics of their time and engaged in, uh, in, in the polemical battles of their time. And so that's, that's the approach, I think, drawn from, a, drawn from a tradition of which Skinner is often seen to be the representative that, that I, I do really embrace in this book. So that the, the political thinkers are actually involved in politics, as we might say, um, in their thinking, that, that it's, it's imp- impossible to separate their theories from an understanding of what is the politics of their day and how that also forms them, which I think is also important in thinking about political theory in general, that it is involved in politics. I think, yeah, if I could just, I think that's right. And I think it's, I think it's really important and it's important to the way we teach these thinkers too. If you were to sit in a, in a standard history of political thought class, or maybe especially a a class in the history of political philosophy, maybe taught in a philosophy department. Think about the picture you would get of, let's say, Hobbes. You know, you'd get a picture that this this is a guy who set out to understand the justification for the state. You know, why, why are states justified? If we're all naturally free and equal, why why can and how can we be legitimately subject to political authority? And he gives some kind of social contract argument to show us that we can be legitimately subject to it because in some complicated way, we've, we've consented to put ourselves under that authority. Now, that's fair. That's, that's, it's not like that's an inaccurate description of some of what's going on in the text. But in order to understand some of the particular moves that Hobbes makes, you're going to want to understand the context of his of his time, right? If he just wanted to set out uh, to to do this this sort of philosophical work, then a lot of aspects of his texts, a lot of the argumentative moves he makes would be inexplicable to us, especially inexplicable would be all the religious stuff in the second (laughs) half of the book. And so I think in order to understand the text as a whole, we need to understand something of its context as well. This is not to reduce these thinkers to mere products of their time or to mere polemicists. They are also philosophers. Hobbes did also write a book that he intended could be uh, could tell us something that was universal and good for all time. But at the same time, he was trying to trying to see how we could avoid how his country could avoid entering into another civil war. So both things are going on at once. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's, that's really important to understand about um, political theorists that we read and that we teach, as you say. Um, I, I really found, as I said, the, the footnotes in your book could be a complete other book. Um, <laughs> and, and they're, they're really fantastic in terms of providing context and um, explanation of a lot of what is the body of the book, which is extremely well written as well, and really um, wonderful to read. But I'm, I, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about sort of what you do within the book and toggling between apocalyptic references from these political theorists in our contemporary political landscape. How should we understand these concepts in, dare we say it, the age of Trump? Great. Well, Trump uh, rose into political prominence just as this book was being completed, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't help but make these connections myself. I, I mean, 
before we get to Trump, we might just, in order to contextualize Trump a little bit, um, I think it's important to recognize what a prominent role apocalyptic thinking has played in the United States since its founding. I mean, the the Puritans thought they were escaping the wars of the end times in England, that same civil war that Hobbes, that that Hobbes was living through, albeit for him in, at the safe distance of Paris. But um, the Puritans thought they were escaping the wars of the end times in England. And, and some of them actually thought they were establishing in America the new Jerusalem foretold in the book of Revelation. You see Lincoln draw on this apocalyptic language to talk about slavery, right? He, uh, he says, and now the cup of iniquity is full and the vials of God's wrath will be poured out, that God had tolerated the, the, the sin of, and evil of slavery long enough and now it had come to head and we were, we were, in a sense, in an apocalyptic battle. Theodore Roosevelt uses it as well to address a crowd in, uh, before the 1912 Republican National Convention. He says, as we, as we fight against the uh, dangers of special privilege in, in government, we will stand at Armageddon and battle for the Lord. I mean, this stuff runs through the American tradition, and I've already gestured at the examples of Bush and Gore. So I think it's important to understand Trump in in that context. But Trump did certainly use apocalyptic language to, uh, I was about to say to great effect, but we we might just say to uh, in effective ways in the the 2016 campaign. He cast himself uh, as, as a savior. He cast America's problems in apocalyptic Terms. He said that economic collapse, uh, infrastructure disintegration, what he called radical Islamic uh, terrorism, were spelling uh, the end of America. He said, I'm quoting him here, if we don't get tough and if we don't get smart and fast, we're not going to have a country anymore. He also said that if Americans listened to him, if they voted for him, he would save them. He said, I'm quoting him again, our problems can all be fixed, but only by me. And I alone, he said, I alone a lot. Yes, I alone. I'm, I'm the solution to, uh, to, these, to these problems that have brought us to the brink of an apocalyptic end for America. Now, I think that, so on the one hand, Trump's rhetoric there participates in this long tradition of apocalyptic thinking in American politics. But I, the, I'd like to distinguish him a bit from what I'd take to be the best of that tradition. I mean, I think at its best, think of Lincoln, for instance, apocalyptic rhetoric has been used to shock citizens into acting against injustices. It's been used to remind them of their founding values. It's been used to call on them to act on those values together. And I I don't think any of us could say that is what Trump's apocalyptic or doomsaying rhetoric is trying to do. I think his rhetoric divides, it excludes. At its core is what I've previously called a kind of narcissistic messianism, that, that Trump promises that America's problems can be fixed, but not by Americans doing something together, not by promoting a, a kind of unity or common purpose, but they can be fixed only by him, as you pointed out. And and I think that that's, you know, I think that, that your point about how it is a distinction from the apocalyptic sort of rhetoric and thought that the rest of your book explores is one that's important to keep in mind in terms of how politicians, contemporary politicians, use these phrases, use these concepts and these these images that they project. Um, and and I think that you know there is I think you're right. There's there's a distinction in the rhetoric and the emphasis um, that Trump brings to some of these these discussions and in his speeches. I think Trump, the the example of Trump really highlights what 
I flag as some of the dangers of apocalyptic rhetoric in, in the book, that at its worst, it is very divisive and polarizing, that it can divide uh, it can divide listeners into us versus them, good versus evil. And as we as we all know, and I, there's certainly a lot of social psychology uh, research to back this up, when we divide people in that way, and we start to see our enemies as evil, as beyond redemption, the danger is that then anything goes in combating them, that the, the standard moral restrictions on what we can do to one another get loosened or even lifted when we, uh, when we divide people in that way. And, and that really is apocalyptic language or rhetoric at its, its worst, that idea of a false moral clarity, uh, us versus them, good versus evil, when, as we all know, the, the problems that America or any other country faces are, are complex. There's room for reasonable disagreement. And, uh, and at our best, what we do is, is try and and muddle through the best we can, hopefully with uh, with s- some idea of justice on our side. Which which um, is a is a, an important distinction to make, and an understanding of the nuance within sort of apocalyptic um, rhetoric and thought. Um, so, given the really uplifting topic that you wrote about in this book, Allison, what are you working on now? Well, as as you may have uh, you may have twigged to this hearing hearing some of my responses already, but writing that first book really caused me to fall for Hobbes. I mean, he's such an interesting figure. And I I didn't go into this project thinking that that uh, that what it would produce would be an enduring interest in Thomas Hobbes. Uh, but that was one of its uh, one of its outputs. And what I've been, I'm working on a, uh, another book, and it's going to be focused on him. And it's going to be focused on the religious and scriptural arguments that run through his political works. And I think this is another instance where, as I've suggested, context really matters. And Hobbes tells us something really revealing in his uh, one of his autobiographies. He says that he was he was in Paris during the Civil War, and he was working away on some some of his much more abstract philosophies, stuff to do with with optics and uh, mathematics, as well as some of the the fundamentals of uh, of philosophy. So he wasn't doing political philosophy. And then uh, the the young Prince Charles, who would eventually at the Restoration become Charles II, arrives with his entourage, and uh, they they tell Hobbes something of what the political debate is looking like in England. And part of what they tell him is that, oh, there, people are invoking God and God's laws to justify rebellion. And Hobbes tells us that, uh, that he had to, he was compelled at that point to put his more abstract work aside and to write a work that would, as he put it, absolve God's laws. And what he means is absolve them of the charge that lay legitimated rebellion. Now, scholars have all sorts of things to say about Hobbes' statement there. They think that he uh, he's, he's suggesting retrospectively that he started work on Leviathan before he, uh, we, we actually think he did. But I think the important thing is that that statement of his motives, that he wrote the book to absolve God's laws, is really interesting. And that's not at all how we teach Hobbes to undergrads is not how I learned Hobbes. You know, we we might say Hobbes, uh, as I suggested earlier, Hobbes wants to answer a fundamental question of political obligation. Why ought to I obey the laws of my my state? Or at most, if we have a more contextualist approach, we might say that Hobbes is trying to answer the practical question in his own time. Who should I obey? You know, if I if I had sworn allegiance to Charles I, who's now executed, and I'm stuck with this Cromwell guy, do I have to obey him? Or, or a bit later on, if if I was a if I was a parliamentarian and a supporter of Cromwell, and now I'm living in the Restoration, do I have to obey Charles II? So, we might tell students, well, he's Hobbes is concerned with answering this fundamental practical question, but. 
that Hobbes himself said his purpose was to absolve God's laws, I think is really interesting. So I'm trying to look at his work with that in mind to, to bring the religious and scriptural arguments front and center. And I'm trying to also look at why those religious and scriptural arguments changed over the course of his political works, why he starts to devote more and more space to scripture, why some of the content of the argument changes, and importantly, how his argumentative strategy changes and why he starts in some, at some moments proliferating multiple arguments for the same for the same conclusion. And my intuition there is actually that Hobbes is doing something very pragmatic. He's trying to offer multiple arguments to reach as many different people with as many different kinds of uh, Christian commitments as, as possible. And, and so he's being immensely attentive to the, to, to the different religious worldviews of his audience. And he's trying to bring as many people into his argument as possible. This sounds like a fascinating project. Will you come back on the New Books Network and do another podcast interview with me when it comes out? Oh, I would love to. Thank you, Lily. I, I'm, everybody's doing Hobbes these days. He's very popular. He's, a, he's like having a revival. I, I don't think that's surprising in the age of Trump. That may be. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you may be right there. Um, so, uh, Allison McQueen, author of Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times, where can somebody purchase this book from Cambridge University Press? Well, you can purchase it, no doubt, at many fine academic bookstores, and it should be available at your institutional libraries soon. But the best place to purchase it, at least for now, is through Cambridge University Press's website, where you can get 30% off if you enter the code McQueen, my last name, 19, all, all one word, McQueen19, will get you 30% off the hardcover book at Cambridge University Press. All right. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about um, this excellent book that explores um, sort of theories and and ideas um, that help us understand perhaps today and certainly other days as well. Thank you so much, Lily. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> 